After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hey everyone, it's Raghu and Mind Rolling Back. Got a new thing today. I got something new and it came out of me watching TV. I shouldn't be watching TV or looking at the, and I'm talking about the news or looking at the, you know, in any of the stuff that comes through social media. Uh, but I did and I started really, oh Jesus, these times are really tough and that ain't news to nobody. But, um, then I started thinking, wow, I've done a lot of podcasts with some great Buddhists. Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Lama Suryadas, Roshi Halifax, Joan Halifax, amongst many others, not the least of which is this wonderful podcast we did with Mingjur Rinpoche. And I thought, wow, let's, put it, let's compile some of the best things these guys, these Buddhists have said. By the way, these are my beloved Buddhists, okay? And uh, let's put something together that will kind of address the, the tough times. That'll be like an, an antidote to some of the reactive behavior that certainly I have exhibited recently. And uh, that maybe there's a couple of you out there that might uh, also uh, be in that same bag. And I thought, okay, this is really stuff's going to serve to cultivate what they call the Buddhist they. <laughs> true self or Buddha mind and what I like to call it's going to cultivate that part of us that is fundamentally kind caring and compassionate and loving and uh, I think we could all use a dose of that so we put this uh, podcast together based on that and based on obviously Buddhist principles Buddhist wisdom but let me say these guys all live in in the center of their being, in what call uh, what Ramdas calls loving awareness, so perfect example of that. So I hope uh, this helps all of us, including me, starting with me. And uh, enjoy, and we shall see you next week on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. So this book is wonderful, not just for this incredible story of you leaving and becoming a sadhu. Uh, but also uh, reflecting on the different teachings that, that you've had and sharing those. Uh, I found that. And there's one in particular uh, that you say Tibetans have an expression for deliberately increasing the challenges of maintaining a steady mind. And it's called adding wood to the fire, which I've never heard of before. Can you, can you talk about that and that, that practice? And Right. So what we call the 
the style of practice is self-liberation, self-antidote, sometimes what we call self-antidote, self-liberation, which is um, we all have this uh, awareness. So this awareness with us 24 hours, never be separate. And this awareness is pure, present, calm. It's like sky. The sky is always there, always free, pure. But then there's a lot of cloud in the sky. You, you might have nice cloud, beautiful cloud, ugly cloud, and pollution also, or fresh air also. So a lot of things are happening in the cloud, I mean, in the sky, but the sky is still free and present. Mm. So we all possess this kind of awareness. And this awareness is the background of our thought, emotion, feeling, perception, memory, all this like thought, emotion, perception, memory is like cloud. So pleasant, unpleasant, neutral confusion comes and goes, comes, goes, but all are in this awareness. And this awareness also infused with the compassion, wisdom. So awareness, compassion, wisdom is like sky. So it's really important for the self-liberation meditation, like self-liberated meditation is first connect with awareness. And how to connect with awareness? There's step-by-step practice, like you can use form is the way to connect with your awareness, with sound, with the smell, with the taste, with sensation, with thought, with emotion. So from the five senses, Everything can be support for awareness. Mm. Everything can be adds to recognition of awareness. Awareness with us all the time, but if the problem is we are not recognized. So normally what I call, if you have watch, the quality of watch is to tell you time, right? But if you're not recognized watch, even though you have the best watch in the world, watch cannot tell you time. Once you recognize the watch, then watch can you t- watch can tell you the time. But the watch is same as before, not getting better. So therefore, to connect with this vast and present genuine awareness, first you have to practice safe place with the right environment and condition. So we do the retreat sometime, the formal retreat, solitary retreat. It's like if you want to make the fire, first you have to start with the tiny woods, right? With not too much wind, easy to make, set the fire. Then once the fire becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, you add more gross, I mean the bigger woods. And then wind blows better. In the end, more woods, more wind is better. So that's the idea that first you have to you know, develop this uh, awareness with the right condition. Then slowly, slowly, you need to face the challenge. Mm. And the challenges can be like um, environment, physically, emotionally, a lot of different challenges. It's really good. So in Tibet, some place, the meditators will meditate in the mountain. So what I call 
five star caves <laughs> in the mountain. Now, <laughs> <laughs> five star cave meaning the cave where there's a stream of the water nearby the cave, and the cave is dry, and there's a woods around there, dry woods, dry branches. Yeah. Then that is the five star cave. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are in the five star cave. There's not so much a problem sometimes. Yeah. Then some meditators they come down to the village and town look for problem. Mm. Uh -huh. So, therefore, it's challenge normally is really, in a way, for the sub sub transform transformative meditation, sub liberated meditation, is uh, eventually really beneficial. Mm? But for uh, let's just talk about just for laymen or people on the family kind of people and so on. Just <clears throat> this idea of of bringing in, uh, uh, piling, uh, get the the wood up and getting that uh, to the point where you're not running away from it, and you're getting closer to it. You're you're forming some kind of say friendship with it. What, how, yes. how do we approach that, uh, talking to householders in terms of yeah. this concept? Yeah, I think the, for the self-liberated style of meditation is you can meditate everywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. But of course, first, when you begin to learn meditation, you need to have kind of the right circumstances. You need to do formal session. Every day, a little bit, maybe begin with 10, 15 minutes, just full time dedication for only meditation. And then apply meditation in your life while you are having whatever your normal life having. At your workplace, while you're having dinner, lunch, breakfast. So you can practice everywhere, anytime. As you develop more and more experience, then actually nowadays in our modern life they're full of challenge isn't it yeah so normal what i said maybe you don't need to look look for a cave or go to some particular places like uh, even children when you become 18 years old you have to away from the family and you have to start everything by yourself right mm. your life it's like wondering wondering retreat, you can be like that. <laughs> yeah. Or in our life, there's a, anytime there might have some challenges, um, a challenge from the environment, physically, mentally, a lot of things like that. These are really great opportunity, I think, hmm. if we yeah, transform. <clears throat> yeah. So in thinking more uh, about the concept of getting real, then I started to think uh, yesterday when I was thinking about us chatting, I started to think about uh, the Noble Eightfold Path of the Buddha. And we we actually have done, long time ago, Sharon, we did a podcast around the eight, Eightfold Path, and it was, it was really fantastic. Those of you, you can look up uh, that uh, in, on Mind Rolling because it's well worth it. So I don't want to get into too much of, of details of the stuff that we've already covered, but there, in terms of, of getting real, I mean, gee, 
right understanding, right thought, right speed, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right conference, uh, concentration. Uh, what do we mean, just in general, by right, in terms of getting real? Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of uh, kind of modern scholars, they don't like the word right. Oh, really? Uh, because they, it brings up wrong. I like the word right because I think there is a wrong. Uh, you know, and so people try – maybe also people trying to make it more palatable for listeners, you know, that like uh, it's balanced understanding, balanced thought. It's wise understanding. It's wise thought. Mm. I like right because I, I think there is a right and a wrong, you know. Mm. And um, that's not saying you're a bad person, you know, or I'm a bad person when I – practice wrong speech, you know, for example, uh, but actions are consequential and, and the wrong, you know, is, is a matter of pain. It's not a matter of goodness, one's inherent goodness. When we do things or we cultivate traits or, uh, habits that cause more and more suffering to ourselves and to others, that there's a wrongness there, you know, that's, that's what makes it wrong. When we do things or we cultivate forces in our own minds that, um, bring us closer to uh, balance and harmony and love and uh, wisdom, there's a rightness there. You know, so that's what it really means. And, and uh, I, you know, I think the Eightfold Path is is magnificent because there it is. You know, that's what we long for. It's like most of us, not everybody perhaps, but most of us uh, would like to be more loving, for example. Mm. Um like I have a friend who's British. He grew up in the Church of England, and he said, from the time he was a kid, like nine years old, say, uh, when he would hear "Love thy neighbor as thyself," he would just feel this thrill go through his whole body, and mm. he would be like in rapture. And then he said, from the time he was about nine years old, he'd get into big trouble because his question was always, "Well, how? We don't actually like our neighbor that much, <laughs> you know? Like how? Or maybe we don't like ourselves that much." So the how is the point, you know, that these things can be real. You know, it's not just idealism or something you say on Sunday in church and you forget about the rest of the week. These things can be real. It can be how we live. But for most of us, there's a big how, you know. We have to look at what's holding us back. We have to look at the challenges or hindrances. We have to learn how to let go. We have to learn how to step forward into new terrain like being willing to experiment and, you know, maybe thank people we take for granted or be generous where we haven't been before, you know? So, so there's a lot of how to the how. Uh, and I find that amazing, you know, cause that's very reassuring instead of like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to live it. Yeah. How, which is a lot of what we're talking about here when we're talking about getting real and the how of it. Let's, let's take one, which is a very difficult thing for Westerners, right effort, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, because we are so oriented to success and goal-oriented, yeah. and, yeah. and we're going we're gonna to make this effort or else kind of a thing. Uh, so I think that there's a real, when we talk about right effort, uh, I think we, we need to really address the, to me, with practice, the equanimity that needs to be brought into the moment in regards to effort. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe just chat about that for a minute. Yeah, I mean, what I say now in my older years is... Uh, <laughs> You're young. Uh, 
you know, <laughs> I think nothing in life is a straight shot. You know, like we want to learn something, we want to change something. It's going to mean going forward, falling down, picking yourself up, or letting others help you up and going forward again. So any effort has to be wise, you know, it has to be intelligent. You know, I used to think with meditation, for example, like, okay, it's hard in the beginning, but I'm going to have the great breakthrough experience, and it will never be difficult again for a moment after that, you know, and that doesn't really happen. We go up, we go down, we keep going, and... um you know, so then it does need, to, I mean, equanimity is, I think, exactly the right term. We do need a kind of equanimity. We need an understanding. Like, yeah, we're going to be beginning again. We're going to blow it a lot. That's where self-compassion comes in. Um, you know, instead of spending the next year and a half blaming yourself for having blown it, for having your mind wander, you start over, you know. And uh, that's why we call meditation sometimes a practice of resilience because it teaches us that. And um, it's a very necessary part of things. Like I've heard, you know, in, in Buddhist teaching, we we take um, voluntarily, we, we take certain precepts, you know, certain ethical uh, guidelines. We undertake them, you know, not to kill, not to steal, things like that. And, um, you know, I've heard people say, um, and some of them have to do with not, lie, you know, speaking the truth and not lying and and so on. And I've heard people say, you know, I don't know what to do. I said the wrong thing. I really blew it. And, and you know, and they're asking some venerable teacher and they're like shaking because they're so upset. And, and the teacher just looks at them and says, well, then you need to take the precept again. Hmm. You know, it's not like penance or hellfire. It's like you have to start again. You know, lessons learned maybe, you know, or maybe there's, I guess, some amends to be made sometimes, you know, but uh, definitely lessons learned and, and taking that knowledge. Oh, this really hurts. This feels crummy to have told that lie and look how paranoid I am about being found out. And it's not really a good way to live. You know, we take that understanding into a resolve not to just be reckless again to the best of our ability. And, you know, so that, that's kind of the tone of it. Hmm. And um, getting, and everybody out there that's listening right now, uh, one of the great things that Sharon has uh, shared with us over the years and in the retreats and podcasts and so on is the universal truth of starting over. You can start again. That takes a lot of the bullshit out of feeling like, uh, uh, out of the projections, out of the manipulations, out mm -hmm. of everything that we get stuck because we get stuck in our minds over these things. And that is what uh, is, it puts us on the continuum of being stuck. And which, so just the, the idea, everybody, we can start over at any one point, not just in a meditation practice when you know you're, you're lost in thought and you, you bring yourself, okay, start again. But when you go through these, in terms of all of the Eightfold Path about right understanding, thought, speech, and all of it, you can start over once you realize that you mm -hmm. are not in sync with what uh, with Dharma. And we'll mm -hmm. talk about that in a bit. Uh, and and one of the other things here that I'd like to talk about here when we're talking about the Eightfold Path is, uh, and you just brought it up, and and it's around ethics. And my understanding is that um, it's that what we're talking about, or what Buddha was talking about. Uh, and the Buddhist teachings are talking about 
is ethics is related to love and compassion. So that what it is that we're... It, so this isn't... Um, you're not in high school and, you know, you can't get out of line because you get out of line, you're going to the principal's office. This, this is how we in the West interpret this, kind, this word even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So say a little bit about the reality of ethical conduct and love and compassion, which is really the heart of what we're talking about. Well, I think the, um, the almost like the innermost layer of love and compassion is for ourselves. Mm. You know, that's the first reason we practice ethics is because it's a miserable mind state. You know, we don't always realize that, but once you start looking within, however you're practicing introspection, uh, you kind of see, oh, that stuff doesn't go away. You know, I'm still worried about that lie I told, you know, 15 years ago. Look at that. I never knew. And the, it's just burdensome. And, you know, the thought that we can, say, tell a lot of lies and then sit down on Saturday and do a workshop to seek the truth, and it's not going to be connected to our experience, it, it's just not real. That's not real, you know, because our lives are of one piece. And so... um you know, you sit down and you've, you know, done something kind of off, you know, that's really breaking the harmony or or you've been deceitful in some way. And usually it comes up at some point or another. And so instead of sitting there feeling your breath or doing a mantra or whatever, you're thinking, did I lie to enough people? Maybe I have to lie to somebody else because I have to bolster that original lie. And, <laughs> you know, maybe it wasn't convincing enough or you know, what if they ever find out that I'm living, I'm not, by the way, living in an illegal sublet. I'm living <laughs> in a very legal sublet. But, you know, what if I had been, you know, what if I took up that offer and I, I took advantage of that opportunity that came? And then, I, you know, I'd be sitting here every day thinking, you know, was that a knock at the door? <laughs> Are they coming to throw me out? Or, you know? And so you realize there are consequences to where we, how we speak. You know, it's a very powerful form of being speech. And there are consequences to our actions. And just out of the greatest kindness for yourself, you think, I don't think so, you know? Like, I don't need to just stay on this treadmill and, and keep perpetuating this really bad feeling. And I'm going to try something else. And and that is very un-American in a way or un-Western because I think when we think of an adventure and being bold and, you know, we think of being more reckless. We don't think about being simpler, you know, or kinder or more truthful or, Something like that. So it's turning a lot around to to think. Well, what would it be like? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I want to talk about dharma, you know, because that's another misinterpreted kind of term. And uh, let me just say what uh, Robert talks about dharma, which people uh, mistranslate as duty, and or others as religion, and others as vocation. Uh, and he says it's really what doing what you are born to do. Conforming to your dharma means following that path through life and performing those actions that best agree with you as an individual in the context of the environment in which you exist. Dharma is the universal law which makes a thing what it is. The dharma of the moon to shine, of volcanoes to erupt, of boats to float, and of hyenas to laugh— Horses run, whinny, and toss their manes because it is their dharma to do so, not because they feel any moral obligation mm-hmm. in that direction. I mean, great stuff, right? A dharma is neither sin nor evil. It is simply 
non-conformity with the nature of things, a crime against harmony. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's a great uh, interpretation, but I, I think for us to, to move into yeah. how this can be useful under our getting real uh, using uh, yeah. this kind of wisdom. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, by the time, my understanding is that by the time the Buddha came around, you know, the last Buddha. Um, a lot of that meaning of Dharma that you just read had been corrupted by its association with the caste system. Uh, so it was like the Dharma of Brahmin males to study scripture and mediate with divine forces, whereas that was considered completely wrong for Brahmin females uh, or for people from another caste. And it was the Dharma of, you know, other people to be warriors or to be servants or whatever. And um, and so morality was resting a lot on whether you conform to your caste. And the Buddha came along and said, none of that is true. That, you know, nobility doesn't come from being born. And therefore, the association, you know, given India, that it's not about skin color, right? Um, nobility comes from the intention. It comes from your actions. comes from how you behave. And the karma is from your intentions. And so he kind of tied that use of dharma to one's own intentions. Mm. You know, and and that was sort of a revolution in his time. It was like a social revolution in his time because, you know, Brahmin males were pretty comfortable mediating with divine forces and other people had gotten used to not having a chance to practice a liberating path, for example, you know, because they were sweeping or whatever. Um you know, and the Buddha came around and said, it's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the truth of liberation. And so uh, that's why Dharma more means like the path within the Buddhist context. You know, it's um, the teachings, the nature of things, the truth of things. Another meaning of Dharma is that which supports you. Mm. You know, what will really oppose you. So what Robert is saying so beautifully is um, – I mean, if you totally take it away from that historical association of the caste system, uh, if you're living in touch with some authentic part of yourself um, and uh, it's toward the good, you know, you can be authentically hostile too, you know, so it's not that. Uh, We have some of that going on too. You know, if you live in in touch with... um, you know, some manifestation, like some people are very artistic, you know, and, and their revolutionary action is going to be, you know, theater or poetry or something like that. Other people are this way or that way or whatever. Um, you know, we can be in touch with proclivities. We can be in touch with our nature uh, to be outgoing, to be introverted, whatever it is. Um, but, if the most important thing to be in touch with is like, what is good heartedness? Mm. You know, it's kindness, it's generosity, it's presence, it's caring, it's compassion. You know, that's what's onward leading. However you were sort of trained or born or whatever. Right. Yes. That's our collective Dharma. It really, and the Mm. more we can identify with that, especially in the world we're living in today, then we can stand a chance at, making some contribution of, 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 of a positive nature. Here's something uh, I yeah. want to read to you. Actions affect both doers 
and those around them yes. in unimaginable ways. Yes. And the seeds of karma shape our lives and our worlds, though, and this is the interesting thing, different Buddhist traditions, I believe Joseph Goldstein wrote this, give different weight to whether the action is willed or not. In either yes. case, through mindfulness, yes. we can become aware of the nature of these actions and can, in fact, change our karma, the concept of cause and effect. Right. But, but wait to whether the action is willed or not. What, what do you, what's your oh, reaction? That's a, that's a very important point and very correct. And it is, I don't know if it's a different kinds of Buddhism. I don't know any kind of Buddhism that doesn't define karma, what, I, what I'm saying, evolutionary action. That means action that has an evolutionary impact in the sense that it affects your embodiment, your your life, your speech, your experiences in the future. So you and you never stay still. You got to go up or down in in, the, in your quality of experience and quality of life. And uh, and so, it, in order for action to be evolutionary, it has to be intentional action. Chetana, you know, it's the word is chetana, and um, you know, a willed action, in the sense of you decided that, so you're responsible for it. You know. You're motivated to do it, so you're responsible for it. So the 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 locus of control of your world is your mind. Your it, it, Buddha was the first rebel against uh, authoritarian religion, and uh, people don't normally know this. Karma before Buddha's time, and I'm not saying he, he, he uniquely did this. There were other sages who were in the ballpark with him, I'm sure, at the time. But mm -hmm. he's the one who's most known for it, and that is that karma meant a ritual action. And, and the word samskara, which is the second branch of the 12 links in Buddhism, and also the word karma, both of those words are words in the brahmanas for ritual activities. And ritual activities are the ones that are powerful in determining your fate if you think your fate is controlled by gods. And the rituals are offerings to propitiate the gods and, yes, give me victory, give me progeny, give me wealth, give me security, whatever you want from the gods, getting favors. You're bartering with the gods through the ritual to have a good faith because you think they control you. So Buddha's, in Buddha's time anyway, and I think Buddha himself, is the one who rejected that. And he told his father, when his father said he was being impractical, trying to attain enlightenment, he should just be a king and take care of society. And he said, Buddha said, well, but people's problems are not mainly their social problems. They are their problems of birth, death, sickness, old age, and death, you know. And then he said, oh, you can't help them with that. The priests are doing it. The gods take care of that. And then Buddha said, well, they're doing a crappy job. <laughs> and I think I can do better. I think we can do better. And so he rebelled against that. And he created this sort of secular ethic like the Lama talks about today. But in those times, karma, evolutionary action, was a secular ethic because he was saying, what you think in your mind is what brings you happiness or unhappiness, like in the Dhammapada, you know? Happiness follows a bad mind, a good mind, like the wheel follows the hoof of the ox pulling the cart. And, and unhappiness and misery follows the bad mind like the wheel follows the hoof. Right? That's sort of absolutely seminal in Buddha's insight. And, but that was not the way it always was in India in his time, not at all. In the Vedic thing, they would sacrifice even animals, which Buddha was very much against. Because a, you know, the gods wanted a burger or something. The gods wanted a barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> they thought. Because they were kind yeah. of warlike, fearsome gods, but uh, the Vedic gods were no sweet, cute Krishna in those days, and uh, so, 
So this is, and we, you know, people constantly go around, oh, my karma, like it was a fate following them. You know, they misuse the word karma like that. Oh, that's your karma. Like it's some deterministic thing because we're used to, you know, when we gave up being controlled by God, I'm, when I say we, I mean the people in the culture, then they got into being controlled by their genes, you know, or controlled by their unconscious, controlled by their social situation. You know, Darwin, Marx, and Freud, the three <laughs> great prophets of modern secularism, you know. So they still, they feel helpless. People feel helpless. Buddha wants you to get real and take responsibility for your mind. And that's why those societies supported people and they considered, for example, an education like delivered by Columbia or Harvard University sucks because they don't directly teach you to control your mind. You know, Vipassana and Shamatha should be core curriculum courses in decent liberal arts universities. Because it's not, I mean, indirectly by having to learn a language or memorize a formula or, you know, do something like that, you get more concentration and your mind improves as an instrument. But you, you, you don't look into your emotions and your reactions. You're not taught to do that. Except maybe in yeah. humanities courses, you read literature and you see some guy who had a bad temper, have a bad thing happen to him, and you, you try not to imitate that. So indirectly, there's, there's a lot of moral reinforcement, but they will not discuss ethics, basically. They will not discuss uh, the quality of your mind as an instrument, the instrument with which you learn, with which you experience, with which you do things. They don't help you with that, and that sucks, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, it's, and it's really a kind of denial on the part of the, of the great billion-dollar educational industry that they are responsible for helping students learn to control their minds. And and here we're 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 getting to the core of the real joint relationship of of my of Sharon's premise of getting real and karma. Yeah. I think we're they're, they're so, so part well, you know, of each other. In the other. realistic worldview, the first branch, the realistic worldview, where you have to develop your wisdom of through learning, critical meditation or discursive meditation, you know. And then finally, meditate, you know, pointed, focused meditation, those three stages. Uh, the main thing is you don't have to believe in Buddha. You don't have to believe in gods or you don't have to believe any particular thing. But you have to believe in causality. That's the key thing. Causality is the key thing. And that's so interesting because why is causality the key thing? Because our problem comes because we feel we have an essential self that is beyond causality. This is our wrong wiring, according to Buddhist psychology. And it make, gives us that rigidness. And therefore, we have a sort of rigid self-image. And we have a rigid this. And then we rigid that. And then even we try to go into escape states, meditative escape states, where we will be disconnected from reality. And some people will even define that as liberation. But mm -hmm. not Buddha. Not Buddha. He taught the four formless states as being not nirvana although very stable and extremely quietistic states, infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness even. You can go and jump into Carl Sagan's nothingness or Unamuno, existential nothingness, and then beyond consciousness and unconsciousness. And he clearly said that those four states, while something that adept yogis can attain, they should know ahead of time, they're still relational states because you enter them through certain expertise, through certain cultivation, certain practice, and you exit them. 
eventually, sooner, although it might, if you're lured into them thinking that's ultimate reality, you might become a deity of the formless realm, a bodiless deity for aeons, actually. They, they, they warn, you know, but I don't know, they tend to exaggerate a little bit, I think. But anyway, you might get stuck there. And the point is, uh, uh, causality, if you, if, you, if you have to sort of adopt a realistic worldview that you are a causal process, and that everything relative is relative. And that is the encounter, of course, with emptiness, because emptiness means every relative thing is empty of any non-relative, non-causal element. That's all that emptiness means. It doesn't mean emptiness is a place that's empty. It means every causal process is, happens because each relative thing is only relative and therefore only interconnected, and that's what we are. So. So, so that's, and then once you accept causality, then it's like the second law of thermodynamics, spiritual thermodynamics. You cannot become nothing. No fear, no death. We're going to get into that. You know, you can't be nothing because no energy is ever destroyed. It only changes form. Hmm. And our minds are energy, very, very subtle energy, but they are energy because we know that because they affect the motions of our body, the motions of our speech. They affect things, you know, what the, the actions that we do, the consequences of what we think. And so we know that they are energy because they interact causally and effectively, effectually with other uh, things that we can see are energy. Which brings me to the next subject, by the way, which is you can't talk about karma without talking about reincarnation. So That's what they say. Yeah. And that's tricky because not everybody believes in that. But uh, I think it, what it is about is the, the bigger ecology of being. Like we didn't just start when we popped out of mommy's womb. We were there a month before. We were there five months before. And we don't just end when we take our last breath. Maybe there's still brain activity. There are near-death experiences and returners. You know, maybe maybe you can not breathe for two or three minutes and still be alive. And so it's hard to know where these indefinable things like our light body or a clear light uh, spirit or awareness mind is and how it comes and goes so that naturally as voltaire or one of the european wise guys said a long time ago i don't know about many lives but isn't it equally amazing or miraculous or kind of preposterous to just believe there's just one life that we just popped out of nowhere and then go nowhere isn't that equally preposterous yeah so that just opens the field for further inquiry. But the notion of karma is because it's individual and collective, whether we are reborn in the way that we think, you know, just like changing your clothes and, and, and the next day, same person goes on, where it's a much more mysterious process of luminosity and like body English that continues like a ripple in a current going downstream where all the water molecules may be changing, but the ripple in the current continues to be a discernible force going in a certain direction. I think that's a not a bad understanding of rebirth, that what we've set in motion now continues, just like our genes continue down through the next generations. Uh, um, you know, looks and appearance and hair color and um, some other of our um, attributes. And perhaps even the law of karma that was thought up 5,000 years ago, something goes on beyond this life. Maybe it's an early uh, guess at the notion of genes and chromosomes being passed on from generation to generation. Who knows? Mm. 
Here's a, here's a good thing. He said, the karmas that you perform in dizzying number, think of all the things you accomplish in the space of an hour. They grow and mature at different rates, making one lifetime insufficient for you to experience all their, all their effects, unless, of course, you happen to be immortal. Karmic theory, therefore, proposes that <laughs> beings die and are again reborn, reincarnated to continue working out pending reactions. Pending reactions. I love that. Eh? <laughs> There's a big pending list on a day-to-day -day basis. I know. I was going to say, it depends how you look at it. Is it the sword of Damocles hanging over one's head because yeah. of your naughtiness? Or is, is it just, you know, being responsible for what we've done? Like, well, I've taken on the habit of eating too much and not exercising enough, so I'm overweight. It's not a sin. It's just not the healthiest thing. So I'd like to do something about it, but it doesn't consign, consign me to a bad, you know, end or it, it's just not that healthy. And I think that's a very practical and rational analysis of the law of karma on like a physical level and then take it to the level of mental health, to how you think and what you believe and whether you're, you know, positive or negative to yourself and to other people then puts that body English in motion and you uh, have that kind of attitude. You know, we can recondition and decondition our attitudes as well as our minds. In Tibetan, it's called mind training or attitude transformation, lo jung. I mentioned earlier uh, in our chat, we have to at some point uh, get at the uh, concept of tantra and in in the introduction to the law of karma, among the beliefs that Vimalananda shared with Orthodox Tantra, the one reality creates, underlies, and weaves together the multiplicity of matter. And the word Tantra derives from root meaning to weave. Uh, that the oneness of reality is clearly perceived only when all the many varieties of personal obstructions have been removed. And three, that these obstructions can be removed by manipulating the matter of which they are formed for, uh, is that there is no substitute. This is the, the big one here that a lot of people think about. Um, there is no, we get this question all the time because of Maharaji, there is no substitute for a personal guru who shows you your path by giving you a spark of living knowledge. There is no Tantra without a guru. Um, yeah, talk about Tantra a little bit, because this is really at the heart of, of, uh, of, the, of Vimalananda's path, I believe. Well, there are several different definitions of Tantra, and Vimalananda would use a different definition depending on who he was talking to and what kind of mood he was in. But... Um, I think let's take weaving at the moment. Suppose you wanted to learn to weave. It's very possible that if you sat long enough and you happen to find a loom, um, that maybe you would, at the end of several years of experimentation, be able to come out with a piece of cloth. Um, but if you really want to become a weaver, you don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. You want to go to someone who is a master weaver, like Kabir was, for example, because that person has already gone through the grind, has already, has already embodied the art of weaving in his or her body, 
and can uh, can directly assist you to become um, introduced to that the because because it's the fact that weaving has been part of human reality for who knows how many thousands of years, but many thousands of years. As a result of which, there is a certain momentum in the astral world that we could call, for want of a better word, the weaving momentum. It's And it's a kind of a reality. It's a particular kind of shakti that involves the awareness. It's like music. It's like any other kind of art. It's when many people have worked with a particular aspect of reality over many generations, that aspect of reality takes on a little bit of its own personality. And it can, and we can interact with it. Vimala, one way that Vimalananda would describe Tantra was as the science of personality. So let's say that we were working with weaving. It could also be alchemy. It could be Jyotisha, astrology. It could be anything. <laughs> but there is a reality of weaving in the astral or the archetypal world that's been created by human beings. And if we tap into that, then in fact, it would not be you or me trying to weave. It would be that force of weaving that is the that is the. Uh, the the sum total of all the weaving that's been done by all the humans, it would be that momentum and force of weaving that will be acting through us in order to create the finished product. And that's why the guru is necessary, because it is the guru, or in the case of weaving, your your weaving teacher, who introduces to yourself to you how exactly to align with that reality. And if you watch them working, you can, and you have a certain subtlety of, of awareness, if you watch them working, you can see that reality working through them. And once you can see that reality, then then you have a way of connecting to that reality and, 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 and opening yourself to it so that it can work through you. So, and weaving is a good um, example for tantra, not only because that's where the word comes from, uh, because a a another word that derives from the same root is the word tanu, which means the body. So the human body is woven from many different things. It's woven from our karmas. It's woven from the DNA that um, the genetics and epigenetics that um, are part of um, our uh, the what we gain from our ancestors. It's woven from the awarenesses of our ancestors all brought together that is connected to that D uh, DNA and those epigenetic informations. Um, and it, so it's the we have the inheritance of the karma that we have performed, the inheritance of our ancestors, the inheritance of <clears throat> the genetic material and the epigenetics, the inheritance we get from the culture and all the previous humans that have worked with that culture that we're part of and the language we're part of. All of these things are being woven together into what any individual happens to be. So what Tantra is saying is you can actively choose to guide the 
weaving of yourself with the help of the benevolent forces in the universe that are trying to encourage humans to move in the right direction. And the process by you, how you do that is called Tantra. And there, Tantra is not a religion. I think it's important to say that there are Buddhist Tantras, Jain Tantras, Hindu Tantras. There could just as easily be Tantras in any other religion because it is a process. It's not a religion. It's, it's a it's a method, and the different methods that have been described uh, in different traditions suggest that if you employ this method, you can expect to get a particular kind of result. So it should be, you should decide very clearly what kind of result you want, and then find a method that it has at least the potential to move you in that direction and mm. provide you with that result. Mm. Yeah. So the, you also talk about uh, in this book, which I found interesting, we talk about emptiness, but yeah. there's the Western e emptiness that we understand, which is more of a void, and the Eastern or Buddhist emptiness, which is bliss, as Bob which likes is, to say. Which is, right, yeah. orgasm, orgasmic uh, bliss. Yeah, yes. exactly. They were too embarrassed to call it orgasm, so they had to call it bliss. Yeah, right. According okay. to Bob. Yeah. Um, but talk about the, uh, the one that we are all very familiar with, that uh, emptiness that seems not to be able to be filled, and, and how that really affects us uh, in, in very profound ways. Well, the Western emptiness, I was always really interested in the Western emptiness uh, from my own personal experience, because uh, I felt it. Uh, and then when I started training as a psychiatrist, this was in the um, mid 80s, early to mid 80s, I, I trained at a uh, psychiatric hospital hmm. in Westchester that was um, sort of in the forefront of treating what was then being called borderline personality disorder. Um, which, which was a, um, it's a little bit out of fashion now, but people still talk about it, where the people who are subject to it um, have a very intense form of psychological emptiness, such mm. that they're, they're really, um, they really feel empty, and they tend to starve themselves with anorexia, or cut themselves, or um, uh, do very, you know, almost suicidal, but not quite because of the yearning and the emptiness uh, that underlies it. And um, uh, I began to be therapist to a lot of these people and to study with uh, a lot of the psychiatrists who were the best in the field. And I remember coming to Gelek Rinpoche mm. uh, during this time and uh, asking Gelek, you know, what do you make of this emptiness? you know, the psychological emptiness versus the Tibetan Buddhist uh, blissful emptiness. Are they the same or are they different, you know? Or is one a prelude to the other, you know, help help me? And he started going like this, like he said, what is, what is this that a blacksmith does? You know, they, they hit something against, and someone, it was a group uh, kind of discussion, someone said against an anvil, right? He said, yes, 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 against an anvil. He said, this psychological emptiness that you're talking about is like people hitting against uh, real emptiness with the, with the uh, hitting against it like an anvil. It's like sparks of emptiness where uh, people are not totally understanding. They're identifying too quickly with the feeling 
instead of really understanding that uh, they don't have to have the uh, uh, the cohesive together a strong sense of self that they're looking for and feeling deprived of. So he said, these are actually minds hitting against emptiness, but it's too great a concept for them to be able to hold it properly. That's wild. Uh, that, I know, isn't that good? Yeah. Um, so I don't even know if he knew what I was talking about with the <laughs> psychological emptiness, you know, because yeah. there's that, uh, you probably know that story of the Dalai Lama in his first meetings with Western psychotherapists, they were all talking about low self-esteem and psychological emptiness. Mm-hmm. And the Dalai Lama was like puzzled, like, what is this you're talking about? You know, how all of you people, like, and he went around the room, do you have this? Do you have this? And they all nodded their heads. Yes, of course. He said he, he couldn't understand, like, low self-esteem and people of such uh, high achievement. It wasn't a Tibetan concept, you know? It's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a relationship. There is a relationship because those of us growing up in Western culture where ego development, you know, is the pinnacle, thought to be the pinnacle of achievement, when we don't feel that we have as cohesive, coherent, identifiable, uh, strong sense of self as that person over there, we tend to feel diminished or ashamed. Uh, and wish to, you know, get it maybe but through a relationship or something. Um, but that sense of being, you know, of yearning that in the bhakti tradition, you know, gets directed to God, uh, you, you know, in our culture, it sort of has nowhere to go except to eat, uh, you know, turn back on the self and kind of uh, uh, take it out on ourselves. So there's something to be said for just making room for a little bit of... Uh, emptiness and realizing that that might be the a doorway or an opening or a spark of something greater. I couldn't do that when I was listening to Bob Dylan. That saved me. Maybe that was a little bit of a window yeah, to accept. I don't know. But, uh-huh. uh, uh, emptiness appears first as the dark side of our attempts to create a separate and self-sufficient self. That's a, that's a great line. Yeah. Did I say that? You did. I said that. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, and it was around the Gaelic Rinpoche thing. Yeah. Um, and and you, here's what I think is really important for everybody for to to really connect with. Only when we stop fighting with our personal emptiness can we begin to appreciate the transformation that's possible. Yeah. And boredom is involved in all of that as well. Aside from being strangulated by the culture, the parents, and the school, and all of that. Uh, there's a way in which we can't just be. And, of course, today, that's even more uh, obvious with all of the devices and so on. Uh, well, I, I tried to develop that theme a little more, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years later in this book that I wrote about trauma, where I think like the opening chapter I, I called uh, uh, The Way Out is Through which is something that Joseph Goldstein always says, you know, when you're faced with some kind of personal discomfort, anxiety, or it applies to emptiness also, that the, um, <clears throat> the first tendency is to try to ignore it or get away from it or suppress it or push it to one side. But um, that doesn't work that well. And it's when we get more comfortable with whatever the feelings are, even the most difficult ones like emptiness, or it applies to anger, uh, and so on also. When we learn how to hold those feelings in the space of our minds, which I think is a lot of what meditation is teaching us to do, then those feelings themselves become the doorway 
through which we go as trauma as trauma can also it becomes the doorway uh, through which the heart actually starts to open because mm. it's not we're not the only ones having those kinds of feelings you know actually uh, most of the other people in the room on a meditation retreat are struggling with the same feelings yeah you know? yeah no absolutely well, we're getting, Rinpoche, we're getting uh, close to the end of the uh, show, but uh, there's one thing I'd really love for you to talk about. That's um, back to the uh, teachings. And it's around, you've talked about heart and mind and where consciousness emanates from. And, uh, and you've talked about open-mindedness maybe also being synonymous with open-heartedness. Can you talk about the, uh, the confluence of heart and mind and how that can get applied in our daily life? It is interesting, you know, when I was in Tibet, training and learning under the great Tibetan masters and all our thinkings, ideas, everything we talk from the heart. We talk about heart. When you get to the West, we talk from the head. So there is that division between the heart and head. Uh, I don't know where consciousness really is. Or maybe borrow the terminology from Christian soul, but though there is no, um, there's no such uh, unchangeable soul may not be there, but there is something like a uh, impermanent soul is every human being will have it. And uh, Every human being, uh, whether that is called mind or consciousness, or all these are big questions. Honestly, big question. Uh, to me, mind is something else, and uh, the consciousness is something else. Uh, but yet, it is a tremendous a similarity, tremendous, uh, tremendous oneness. Yet there is a slightly separation, and that raises the question: Calls what is a mind? What is consciousness? It is the big, complicated subject. And uh, do we see our mind or consciousness? Yes, we do. We see two different occasions. One occasion during the death period. During the death period, you encounter with your mind and whether you recognize or not, but you do encounter without any mask or any block. 
Another thing you encounter by meditation, uh, you don't need to die. By meditation, you can do. So recognizing your own mind is uh, important. Not the greatest achievement, it's important. True meditation, what the Hindu Buddhist called shamatha, concentrated true meditation. Develop shamatha on the basis of your own mind is a great, quick, better achievement than develop shamatha on anything else. So in order to develop the shamatha, before you even focus on mind, you have to have some idea of what mind, something you have to be focused. Now, what my understanding of the mind is, mind always remains mind, never changed into a physical or form or color or shape, anything. Mind always remains mind. What do we perceive when we are focusing on mind? Virtually nothing. Look like looking in the middle of the space, sky. If there's something, you may see it, but empty sky. So it's just a blank. You perceive something completely blank, like spacious, open space. Yet, you will have an understanding and a perception of rather perceiving it as unchangeable, plus basis to perceive any, anything thoughts, ideas, things, everything. This is base of all, basics. It itself is unchangeable, but it provided the basis to present anything. Are you with me? Or am I talking to myself? Thumbs up. No, 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 no. We're just Sorry. quiet because we really want to drink this in. <laughs> so, so something like that, something like that, and uh, when you have an idea of understanding of that, and that is the beginning of what I call it, found basis of the meditation of mind. So it's very difficult to introduce mind, but uh, and that's the what it is. So the Buddhist principle, 
mind never becomes matter, matter never becomes a mind. That's why it's unchangeable. So Buddha mind we're talking of here. Right. So or mind, women mind. It's each and every one of us have it. Is there is there any individuation of that mind? Yes. Each and everything is individualized. And uh, your mind is not my, not my mind is not yours. It is always like that. Very individual, very perfect, uh, yet is adaptable. But uh, like in the case of a tulku, that... Uh... No, I'm sorry, I forgot to answer that. You said, in the case of a tulku, the consciousness or the soul of the individual supposed to be taking rebirth. So since we believe in the reincarnation, the old man forgets his old uh, consciousness, old body, and then separate this body and mind, and that the mind goes, and whether you're going through Parto or not, whether you're going through Pure Land or not, ultimately you take a rebirth as a human being, human being. So that's why it is supposed to be old soul coming back to make it short. Uh, I don't know whether my expression of old soul coming back is right or wrong. <laughs> but then you know, I noticed one thing. Memories doesn't come back. Uh, even characters not necessarily come back. Mm. Uh, interests also not necessarily come back, but if it is connected with the condition, it picks easily. Mm. If it is not connected with the condition, it is difficult to pick up. Hmm. These are some weighty topics that we've gotten into here with Rinpoche, huh? Love it. Oh, my, my. <laughs>